0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Zorro.com. Zorro.com is where you'll find everything you need for businesses of any size in almost any industry. They have tools, equipment, and supplies for everything you need. Whether you need stuff for industries like electrical, plumbing, manufacturing, or more, Zorro's got it from brands you know and trust and... Zorro.com offers amazing customer service from real people based in the U.S. Visit zorocom slash manliness in all lowercase letters. That's Zorro.com slash manliness to sign up for Z-Mail and get 15% off your first order. Again, Zorro.com slash manliness. Sign up for Z-Mail and get 15% off your first order. <laughs> Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. According to my guest today, many of the world's most eminent leaders, thinkers, athletes, and artists have one thing in common, cultivate stillness in their lives. His name is Ryan Holiday, and in his latest book, Stillness is the Key, he highlights how great individuals have used stillness to do great things. We begin our discussion with how Ryan describes stillness, what it means to find stillness in mind, body, and soul, and how an individual can have stillness in one of these areas, but chaos in another. Ryan shares what we can learn about stillness of mind from JFK's Handling of the Cuban missile crisis and how journaling and limiting media inputs can help us foster our own mental stillness we then discuss the myth that relationships hold you back and how they can in fact help you find both greater achievement and stillness of soul we also discuss what we can learn from winston churchill and how to find physical stillness and why having hobbies is so important to finding balance in life after the show's over check out our show notes at aom.is stillness ryan joins you now via clearcast.io All right, Ryan Holiday, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you got a new book out, Stillness is the Key, and it's part of this trilogy you've been doing about stoicism. Ego is the enemy, the obstacle is the way. How is this book a continuation or sort of a caption of that thinking you've been doing over the years with with this idea of stoicism?
1: What I've been trying to do with the books is take sort of an idea from ancient philosophy and then illustrate it through stories. So The Obstacle is the way was this quote from Marcus Aurelius about how we can, you know, turn what stands in the way in into the way. Ego is the enemy is, you know, about this idea of sort of intellectual humility, batting away pride. You know, you can't learn that which you already know, which is a line from Epictetus. This one started out a little bit more Eastern, you know, the idea of sort of stillness, of clearing the mind, of slowing down. And then as I was researching it, it it sort of came flooding back to me how much the Stoics had talked about the same thing. And, And it's interesting, you know, I've obviously read all these texts all these different times, but I just totally missed that's what they were talking about, which... Which is this interesting thing, and it's sort of a kick 'em on recently, this idea of rereading books, depending on where you are in your life and what you're going through it's like you 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 interpret text a certain way, and i you know it's I just didn't even notice that over and over again Marcus is like even using the word stillness and and talking about you know things in a very almost Zen sense, and so the book was sort of just zooming in on that idea of, of how do we get to a place of sort of inner peace, external peace, not so we can withdraw from the world, but so that we can be better when we are active in the world. Well, I'm going to go back to this idea of that you missed it the first time
0: around. Like, yeah. What do you think was going on in your life that caused you to miss it? Like, What were you focused on, say, eight years ago when yeah. you were reading these texts? Were you like, yeah, that just totally was under the radar?
1: Well, I think be, being much younger, I stillness was was not the problem that I had. It was like... It's sort of like, I I think what I was reacting to was like, Oh, this is how you overcome obstacles. Oh, this is how you, you know, you sort of get your ego under control. I was, I was responding to what I needed at that point in my life. And then as I got a little older, and I'm sure you, you relate to this, it's like, Oh, you realize like this pace that you're on, this intensity is, although it's been an advantage is not really sustainable. And, and and so you, you have to think about it a different way. And there's actually been some interesting studies. And they, they did this one where they sort of scraped all this data about like what young people versus old people were like writing in, in blog posts and on social media. And what they found is that younger people tended to associate happiness with achievement and older people tended to associate happiness with contentment. And I think that's a, just a natural evolution that we're on. And so, You know, early on, I was looking to the Stoics for what they could help me achieve, what they could help me do, what sort of stresses they could help me manage. And then as I've gotten older and I've been, you know, sort of fortunate and privileged in my career, then all of a sudden you have a different set of problems, which is, which you can't solve with this, the skill set that the first set of problems were solved with. And, and ironically, this all ties into a, a theme that that shows up in meditations a lot, which Marcus Aurelius gets from Heraclitus. He says, no man steps in the same river twice. And what he means is that everything is constantly changing, including you and the river. And so as I've gone back and reread a bunch of books, not just the Stokes, but a, a bunch of my favorite novels, I've I've found that I'm interacting with the material in a different way, even though like literally it's unchanged, the environment and myself have evolved. And so all of a sudden you're you're getting something different from the same words printed in the same order.
0: Right. It's a good case for revisiting
1: rereading books multiple totally. times. Totally. Yeah. Have you did you did you have Ben Sass on?
0: Ben Sachs. Uh, no, no, have not. Sass. the senator. Sass, no. No, yeah, no, ben, ben Sass
1: have not. So he, he has this concept of like a five foot bookshelf. He says like, and this almost sounds like an art of manliness post, but he says, you know, every family should have like a five by five bookshelf that is filled with like your family's texts, like the books that you need to read and study to like be a good person. And I think this ties into something Seneca talks about, which is like, it's not about how many books you read in your life, but it's about, you know, Reading the same books over and over again, and studying them very deeply, and so again, I think early in my life it was like oh i 've got to read this i 've never heard of this i don 't know anything about that and so it 's about doing, 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 acquiring, 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 and then at a certain point you go i don 't know if I, if more is the answer, maybe it 's better is the answer and so you you go back and you look at these things and you, you discover them in a new way. well yeah, talking about studies of shifting priorities between
0: younger people and older people, they say the same thing goes with friends. So like when you're young, the priority is like getting lots of friends. And as you get older, the priority shifts to just like winnowing
1: down to like the friends who are like the ones who like give you the
0: most fulfillment.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. No, that's that's beautiful. It's a, it, And that's what's so funny philosophically and all these cliches end up being proven, you know, which is like less is more. Right. So let's talk
0: about what stillness means. I think when people like as you said, when you first started writing the book, it was sort of taking on this eastern flair. You're going looking at Buddhism, Eastern philosophies. And I think people have this idea of stillness being, you know, just means sitting on a pillow, meditating under a tree, like the Buddha. <laughs> yeah. But you highlight in the book that's not necessarily the case. Stillness can be active in a weird way.
1: Yeah, I think we've, we've done ourselves a disservice by making the word stillness synonymous with meditation. And, you know, there are many people who are, who are sitting and meditating are probably the least still people you could possibly imagine. Right. And so what I wanted to do in the book was, was sort of expand the definition and look at it from an Eastern and Western sense, a Christian sense. You know, when, when they talk about when, when Jesus says, peace be still and know that I'm God, he is not saying sit and meditate. You know, I like, so these are, these are different understandings of the same idea from all these different schools. But at the core of it, I think they are talking about. Slowing down. They're talking about equanimity. They're talking about having an even keel. They're talking uh, about not being jerked around by interior, exterior forces. So it's interesting. Like there's, there's kind of not two more different schools than the Stoics and the Epicureans, right? We, we almost take it that they are diametrically opposed. But the Stoic word for stillness is apatheia and the Epicurean word is ataraxia. And they both have like the same definition, which is like some form of tranquility, not being jerked around by interior or exterior passions. So that's the kind of stillness I'm talking about. And, and meditation is one way to get there. Although I very deliberately do not talk about it at all in the book. You know, you can get to stillness. Paradoxically, on a long walk, you can get it sitting with a journal. You can get it reading a book of poetry. You could also get it, you know, sitting on a on a porch watching the snowfall. Right? Like, there's lots of different ways to get to this stillness. And it's when you hear reports from like professional athletes or 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 people have been in really high pressure situations where they managed to do something incredible. When you when you sort of parse. Their descriptions of how they were feeling, what you hear over and over again is some version of that idea of, you know, I wasn't thinking about anything. My mind was empty. I slowed it down. I, I, I was perfectly still, you know, even as they were, you know, throwing a, you know, a touchdown pass or, or, you know, playing a chess match or whatever it is.
0: So I think there's an inherent benefit
1: of stillness, like stillness for its own sake Mm
0: that you can strive for there. But I think let's look at like the people who are still like in that mindset where like, I have to do this for a reason, Yeah, right? You know, so like, what would you say to those people? Like, what are the
1: benefits that come from fostering stillness in your life? Well, what we're doing whatever whatever it is, but anything at the sort of professional or elite level is really hard, right so like like one of the examples I talk about in the book is 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 professional baseball and the, and you 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 see these pitchers and these batters facing off, and the the hitting of baseball is like the single hardest act in professional sports. You have something like four hundred milliseconds to identify. And begin the swinging process for a pitch, right? So if, if you are not still, if your mind is going a million miles a minute, if you're thinking about, you know, an argument you had with the coach, you know, 20 minutes ago, if you're thinking about your contract negotiations that are going to happen at the end of the season, you know, if you are Thinking in advance of the home run you're going to hit, you're going to be in trouble, right? Because that 400 milliseconds requires a hundred percent of your energy. Y- Yogi Berra said, you know, it's impossible to hit and think at the same time. And so I think one of the arguments for stillness is that like it's a resource allocation issue. Like when I look at the best things that I've done professionally, I wasn't doing eight things at the same time. My mind wasn't wandering as I did it. I was like locked in. And so I think one argument, aside from just the, you know, you'll feel better as a human being, is like, this is how you get to access 100% of your resources. I like it. So you highlight... That
0: there are three areas of life, three, three domains of life we can find stillness in, mind, spirit, body, and we'll talk about different ways we can access stillness in those three domains, but I'm curious, is it possible to be still in one of these areas, but not the other? And if so, like, what are some examples of that?
1: Well, that's, that's actually sort of my argument in the book, which is that, like, we, we are often out of balance. So I, you know, one of the characters I was fascinated with that I wrote a lot about is, is someone like Tiger Woods. So here you have a guy who physically, you know, is complete master of himself. Uh, mentally, you know, golf is such a mental game, complete master of himself. And yet, you know, it's hard to argue that sort of spiritually, emotionally, at the soul level, That for a long time, you know, he wasn't, you know, sort of tearing himself to pieces, right? And, and eventually that part of himself that he kept compartmentalized, but was dealing with all sorts of wounds and urges and passions and, you know, temptations, it eventually overwhelmed and, and destroyed, you know, his, his, his considerable mastery of the other two. And it took, you know, basically 10 years. For him to claw his way back with a lot of sort of fits and starts along the way, and so you know I, I talk about someone like Tiger Woods not from a position of judgment, but to to talk about how out of balance we can get. I mean, it, it's it's not a coincidence. A lot of these sort of gurus of of the Eastern world. Turn out to sort of be like depraved monsters, right? It's like they have this sort of mental stillness and and physical stillness that can sit for hours on end, and then it's like when they get up, they are you know doing some some Me Too stuff, right? And my point is like th- this this has to be integrated. You you can't you can't be uh you know a saint in one part of your life and and uh, a monster in the other, and, and expect that to be sustainable. All right, so you have to focus on all three at the same time. Yeah, well it's like you're tackling it from all these different elements because it's like okay, let's say you do get to a place where mentally you can kind of tune things out. You've you've built a really great environment that encourages stillness, but then in your heart, you know, all you feel are jealousy and rage and and uh you know, insecurity, that's not going to that's not going to be sustainable or, you know, you could be someone who is who is, you know, pure-hearted but you know you've developed this hoarding habit and you walk into your house and it's just chaos and dysfunction and you know you're about to be swallowed by piles of your own garbage like that's going to cause a lot of anxiety and worry right and so it's it's how do we how do we tackle this from from all parts of it whether it's the sort of habits that we practice in the course of a day you know the 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 discipline we have over our mind and then also just like the the sort of standards and principles that we operate by i think you're kind of triangulating your way towards, towards some semblance of stillness. That, that's, that's at least the way I think
0: about it. Well, so let's dig into these three domains. The first section that you talk about is the mind, stillness of mind. And you start off talking about JFK, John F. Kennedy's handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis as an example of finding stillness in mind. So walk us through that and how you think JFK purposely looked for stillness to solve this problem.
1: Yeah, we were talking earlier about sort of active stillness or what does stillness look like in the real world? How do you make a self-interested case? I think it's hard to, to, to find a better example of stillness in the real world that had more of an impact than, you know, John F. Kennedy waking up in, in 1962 and finding out, hey, the entire balance of nuclear power in the world has shifted overnight and I am sitting on a powder keg of a situation that, if I'm not careful, literally hundreds of millions of people will die. And he manages over the you know subsequent 13 days to de-escalate, to avoid rushing to judgment, to avoid you know taking the wrong steps or, or making making irrevocable mistakes. He gets Khrushchev to back down. He, you know he he he, sa- he saves humanity from a nuclear holocaust, and he and he does this by, you know, not just from the sort of Zen perspective of thinking of nothing, but in fact, by really slowing down and thinking quite deeply about the situation, about what was at stake, about, you know, he says at one point, like, I'm not interested in the second step of this sort of exchange. He's like, what about the third step and the fifth step and the seventh step and the ninth step? And he's like, you generals who are, you know, telling me that we've got to, you know, Bomb Cuba to hell and back, and then we may have to invade the USSR for for setting this all in motion. He's like, I'm worried that you're so wrong that no one will be around to tell you I told you so when we find out, right? And one one of Kennedy's expressions, he says, you know, you want to use time as a tool, not as a couch. And I think even that the missile crisis, you know, transpires over 13 days is impressive, right? Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure every president who's held office before or since would have would have taken had the fortitude and the clarity to a- allow for that kind of time. And and really, what Kennedy was doing was allowing Khrushchev to come to his senses. Right? It was like five or six days in that Khrushchev's like, "Oh man, this was a huge mistake." Right? But Kennedy, realizing that this is going to happen, has given him room to back down, and and then ultimately we're able to come to a peaceful conclusion. And I mean, he learned from a prior mistake with the Bay of Pig invasion, which failed. Exactly.
0: And like he had that idea, there's like, you got to act, 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 act. And it just ended up a disaster. And he used that as a learning experience. And I'm going to slow things down this time.
1: Yeah. I think it's almost inconceivable that the same president oversaw Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis because they were so transformatively different and such transformatively different examples of what leadership is supposed to look like he was kind of bullied into one and then he had the strength and the confidence and the clarity to you know do the right thing in in the second one and it's just filled with all sorts of you know sort of genius little insights right like he you know everyone was like you got to bomb cuba and he's like well what's russia going to do if we bomb cuba And they were like, well, we haven't thought that far. You know, he's like, well, if I was president of Russia and someone bombed a place we had missiles, I would be forced to attack. He's like, what do you think Khrushchev's advisors are telling him to do right now? Right. Like this, this sort of practice of empathy was, I think, really important. But one of my favorites is when he decides to put a a blockade around Cuba, he's like, look, we're not going to bomb them, but we're not going to let this continue. He's like, we're going to put, you know, our, our, our navy around Cuba and prevent anything from coming or going. You know, he, he realizes that even blockade sounds a little aggressive. And so he calls it a quarantine. It's the same exact thing. But even the language, down to the language he's using to describing what, to describe what he's doing, he is thinking about how this is going to be received. So to me, this is just like the peak performance of leadership and presidential power. Uh, and hopefully we never have to see anything like it again. But he was just sort of firing on all cylinders there.
0: And he did some like meditative practices unknowingly. Like he would just yeah, walk through the rose swim. garden.
1: Yeah, swim. Yeah. He sends a note to the the gardener at the White House, you know, thanking her for her important contributions to saving humanity. What I think is really interesting, and you can Google and see these, like. Kennedy's notes from the missile crisis survive. Like he was doodling on these legal pads, and he was writing kind of mantras to himself, you know. But like you can see a picture of a sailboat that he drew on the White House stationery, you know, as he's having to think about this terrible, you know, weight on his shoulders, and, and yet he's he's finding the ability to sort of zoom out and get some perspective. And I think mostly just calm himself down. But both the Stokes and the Buddhists use the the metaphor of of the mind as muddy water and that you have to let the the dirt and the silt settle down before the water becomes transparent and before you can see through it. And I, I think that's you know that's what Kennedy was doing. But Kennedy's one of those am- examples, too, where he had you know incredible stillness
0: of mind, but not so still in other areas of his life, particularly like the soul part of his life.
1: Yeah, that's what I mean about this compartmentalization. It's like, okay, so in those 13 days, if you only look at it from a policy perspective or a geopolitical standpoint, he's flawless. But then you zoom in at the personal, and it's like there's a scene where Kennedy has one of his aides, you know, drive in a, a beautiful co-ed from a, from a college near DC and they have an affair in a hotel room. And so it's like, he didn't know how the missile crisis was going to end up, right? He couldn't have, but somehow he decided that a good use of those, you know, last few days on earth would be better spent, you know, hooking up with a stranger than, than spending it with his wife and, and, and children. And so to me, that doesn't, that doesn't strike me as a particularly enlightened decision. And it doesn't sound like someone who's in control of themselves, right? And when you look at Kennedy's sort of twisted relationship with his father, some of it starts to make a little bit of sense. So one of the tactics you suggest
0: for getting stillness of mind is limiting inputs. What did that look like in some of the lives of the famous folks that you came across and talked about in the book?
1: I've always loved this story that that Emerson tells about Napoleon, which is that Napoleon would delay the opening of his mail and he would instruct his secretary to to wait sometimes as much as 3 weeks before he checked his mail knowing that by the time most of these letters were open they would have been rendered irrelevant by subsequent events and and he said look if there's something important you know do not delay but if it's not important if it's not urgent if it's good news like he's like don't bother me with it i got you know important things to do and the amount of people that i see today who who it's like the they wake up in the morning and instead of doing whatever they know they need to be working on, and I know you've written about this a lot with this sort of Eisenhower matrix, they, they wake up and the direction of their day is determined by, you know, what people have tweeted. You know, in the few hours that they were asleep or, you know, what unsolicited emails came in or, or, you know, whatever is, is running on, on CNN that morning. And so I think we have to limit our inputs because naturally we're reactive, right? And, and we live in a time where there's way more information to react to than is, is, is remotely necessary or important. And so we have to really zoom in on, on what we're going to care about, what we're going to monitor so that we can, we can not just be still, but so we can, we can. Excel at the few things that we're, you know, put on this planet to excel in. So for me, that's like, a, I don't watch a lot of news. I don't check my phone in the morning. I have no alerts on my phone. You know, I don't schedule things, you know, usually before, before noon because I want to be, I want to do the important things before I've been interrupted by, by the various inputs that are coming my way. But what do you say to folks who think, who would say like, well, you know, things are going fast, changing fast.
0: In order to stay ahead of the competition, you have to be on top of all this stuff that's coming in at you. Sure. What would you say to those guys?
1: I mean, I look at the facts, right? The most successful living investor is... Warren Buffett, who invests from a value standpoint and and thinks in terms of decades, right? The best, the best books, you know, the best music. These are not popular because they are cashing in on a, on a, a trend of the moment. They're working because they connect to something timeless, right? Most of the things that are going on politically right now, if you have any sense of, of history, you, you probably have a better grasp on than the person who is refreshing their Twitter feed in real time. So I, I'm not saying that, uh, you want to be uninformed. I'm saying that, you know, following breaking news or up to the minute information is often, is oftentimes the worst way to be informed. Not only is it incredibly inefficient, but it's often very misleading and gives you a false picture of the world. It's like, if if you, if you pick up, I don't know, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, and you're reading about this sort of jockeying between, you know, two powers, right? I think this will give you more timeless insight about China and America than, you know, following this this sort of petty squabble about, you know, the NBA and the the Rockets GM who tweeted about the, you know, the sort of uh, uprising in Hong Kong, right? So, the, the question is, Is the information that you're going with, is it likely to be rendered irrelevant or is it likely to be, you know, sort of proven incorrect or, or insufficient by the next breaking report? And so when we're limiting our inputs, we're not, we're not going to live in a bubble or we're not choosing ignorance. What we're, what we're trying to choose is more sort of sustainable, reliable, universal information instead. Right. And books. Books are like a great source of you know universal long term information. Yeah, look, and obviously as an author, I'm a little biased, but like you think about like this book, it's like I spent three years writing it. So that's like for for the time that it would take you to read, you know, ten articles that took probably ten hours to write, you're getting, you know, three years of research. And thinking that is a compression of all sorts of you know human experience uh, over over the centuries. You're you're getting all of that, and because you're paying for it, the the author is much more obligated to deliver you high quality information. And then I I would say on top of this. Just the meditative experience of sitting down quietly in a corner with a book, that where you can't be interrupted, where you know there's not a million graphics zinging around, or or you know noises or 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 updates or whatever. Like I think reading is just a better medium for for stillness than than the phone or the television or the desktop. We're
0: gonna take a quick break for you word from our sponsors. All right, Christmas time, guys often get dull, cliche gifts like socks ties. Well, good news. Listeners on my show can get $5 off any Harry's shave set by heading to harrys.com manliness. Free shipping ends December 16th, so you need to act now. It's a practical gift that I'll actually use with German-engineered award-winning blades that last, all backed by 100% quality guarantee. Holiday sets. They got Harry's holiday sets. They started at just $20, and that's within secret Santa limits, and Harry's blade refills are as low as $2 each, so your guy will save money over time. I've been a big fan of Harry's for the past few years. I've had trouble with multi-blade cartridges. Usually, they give me razor burn razor bumps, and they're super expensive. Harry's, on the other hand, incredibly affordable, and I never get razor bumps or razor burns. A great, comfortable, smooth shave. So, I got a special offer for my fans of the show. We've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including their limited edition holiday set. When you go to harrys.com slash manliness, plus you'll get free shipping. Each Harry's shaving set comes with a weighted handle with the option to engrave five blade razor cartridges, foaming shave gel for a rich lather travel cover to protect your blades and it's packaged in a handsome holiday gift box. Again, free shipping ends on December 16th. So you need to act now. Just go to harrys.com slash manliness. That's harrys.com slash manliness. Also by Policy Genius. It's already December. As much as we love getting seasonal, this month can be a bit stressful. We've all got a long list of things to do for the holidays and stuff we want to do before the year ends. And if life insurance is one of those things way down on your list, Policy Genius might be able to help you cross it off. They'll help you find the right life insurance at the best price and do all the work to help you get covered. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze in minutes. You can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape for you. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance too. So if you need life insurance but aren't sure where to start, why not start at policygenius.com? It only takes a few minutes to find the right life insurance policy, apply and cross another thing off your to-do list and policygenius.com policy genius. When it comes to life insurance, it's nice to get it right. And now back to the show. So another tactic uh, for stilling the mind, stilling the mind is journaling. What are some individuals that have
1: journaled to find stillness in themselves? Almost every, you know, person you could possibly imagine, you know, like Half of history is, exists because, you know, people kept diaries and journals. And I think they did it not, not because they were performing for history, but because they were trying to process and wrap their heads around what they're thinking. Marcus Aurelius's meditations is his diary. It's his journal. But he's not saying, you know, I had fruit for breakfast. He's saying, you know, why do I keep losing my temper? How can I get better at this? You know, or he's saying like, why am I so easily riled up or upset or concerned? You know, why am I so worried about this or that? I think Anne Frank's diary is, you know, one of the most incredible documents. I I got to imagine being a 13-year-old girl is already pretty difficult. But then to be trapped in an attic with your parents, afraid that the Nazis are going to come in at any moment, w- would have been obscene, Right. And and she sits and works on these thoughts in this journal that that you know give us such an insight now into the human experience. But she has a great line. She says, you know, paper is more patient than people. And and I just feel every time I find myself getting upset or angry or bitter about something, I I try to spend some time, you know, just writing that down and and hammering it out of my journal. And I almost always feel better and almost always need to do less, right? I need to say less or you know, argue less or cost someone less because uh, I've 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 taken some of the edge off of that on the paper.
0: You know, I think what it does for me, and I, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna this is my my theory. There's probably some psychologists that's confirmed this. I'm 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 definitely sure there's a psychologist that's confirmed this, but I think one of the benefits of jur- journaling is that it allows you to take your emotions and put it through your prefrontal cortex, right? Because the act of writing yeah. is very linear and logical, so it allows you to think about your emotions more even you know more clear with a clear mind. And so you feel better, right? So you're able to do something with your emotions and it just goes through that prefrontal cortex and you feel better afterwards.
1: Yeah, or just think about how often our emotions are in conflict with each other, right? Like it's like we love someone and then we hate them for what they just did, right? These are love and hate simultaneous for the same person. And when that's kind of in your head, they're like in real close proximity to each other, right? And they're bumping up into each other. But when you write it down, now you have some distance, right? You're like, I'm so angry that they did X. Why do they keep doing X to me? You know, how can I? Blah 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 blah. But now you have like a foot and a half of distance from that thought, and you can stare at it and look at it. And I think this is just a a healthier place for that thought to be.
0: How have you kept the uh, journaling habit steady and consistent in your own life?
1: Well, I, I do it every I do it every morning, and it's one of those things that. I think the more you do it, the more you get out of it. But I would just, I would start small. One of the things I, I recommend, it I, I use a journal called the One Line a Day Journal, and you just write one sentence a day for five years. But you can see exactly where you were five years ago, right? It's really cool. I've done, I've done it for about three and a half years, so I have three years of of looking at it. And then a, a couple of years ago, I, I made a journal called the Daily Stoic Journal, which gives you like a question to answer every day. So that, I, I find that to be really uh, Effective and interesting. I guess it's like if you're having trouble journaling, don't just go buy a blank book. I think that's a hard part to s- place to start. There's all sorts of cool guided journals that like help you build a familiarity with the habit. That could be prompts, or there's like a specific way to do it, and that can be a great way to start uh, building the habit. Yeah, I like that
0: idea of uh, starting small because I think yeah, if you go out and buy a blank journal and you just have like one line, you look at the blank page like, well, I didn't really journal and you're just like right. you stop so I like start yeah you're like what
1: should I say today and right. it's like well
0: <laughs> they, they're telling you right so another way you can find stillness of mind is finding silence so any examples yeah. from people that from history where they purposely found silence to find stillness
1: I don't know about you but I don't know how these writers write in coffee shops. It just seems insane to me, you yeah, know. I don't get it. Um, I think the environment that you choose to do your work whether it's creative or otherwise is is so important. Like the open office concept is just it's like literally my nightmare, you know. I would rather not have a job than have a job where I have to work at a in an open office where people can interrupt you at any time. So I was really I was really fascinated by um by Bill Gates taking these sort of think weeks. You know, he goes off a week or two a year where he just has complete silence and solitude. And he just thinks, he just sort of sits alone and he reads and he catches up and he has ideas and he goes for walks. You know, it's just sort of building up time, both I think daily, but also, you know, sort of regularly in your calendar and your life where you have time to, to just be disconnected. Because if you don't have that, what you're What you're preventing is those sort of thoughts that just pop in your head. My, my next book idea came to me when I was, you know, playing on the beach with, with my son on, on a family vacation and it was early in the morning and it was quiet and there's no one there and we were just hanging out. Right. And like, I wouldn't have had that had I been, you know, had I been in a, in back-to-back meetings, let's say.
0: All right, so we get uh, get out in nature, disconnect. That's an easy way for to sure. do that. Yeah one one thing that I really enjoyed is I went to a monastery for a weekend. Which oh, really? Was really nice. Yeah, there's a there's a monastery, Clear Creek Abbey. It is a Benedictine monastery. It's like an hour out of Tulsa. It was awesome. It's like there's no Wi-Fi. There's no cellular coverage, and it's just completely silent there. And it was it was wonderful.
1: Yeah, and I think what happens oftentimes when you experience that silence is is now all of a sudden you can really hear what's going on inside your own head and you realize that's where the noise is coming from. And then you got to do work on yourself to to quiet that down. So let's move to the soul aspect of finding stillness. What do you think are the biggest obstacles of finding stillness in the soul? Well, I think a lot of people are sort of ruled by their emotions. And I'm not saying the alternative is to suppress your emotions, but you know, the Stoics were big at sort of asking. You know, is this emotion, is this urge, is this desire that I'm feeling, is it, is it helpful or not? Right. Is it constructive or deconstructive? So I just see so many people sort of led around through, led around through life by. A bunch of different feelings, right? Sometimes that feeling is anger. Sometimes that feeling is a need to be loved, right? Sometimes that feeling is, is, is you know, it can be any any number of feelings. But they're they're sort of led through life by by this sort of um, emotional reactiveness or this sort of compulsion, and and then you know, sort of unsurprisingly, it doesn't get it doesn't end well. It often gets them in trouble, and so I I think what we're talking about is not not Avoiding or sorry, not, not eliminating all emotions, but, but just getting to that place of ataraxia, as the Epicureans are talking about, where you're not jerked around by, by your passions, where you have a, a sort of a freedom from, from those compulsions and, and desires. So in the book, I talk a lot about anger, which I think is a very sort of prominent Driver in a lot of people's lives. I talk about sort of envy as one of them. You know, as Theodore Roosevelt said, it's sort of a comparison being the thief of joy. It's the thief of joy, but it's also the the driver of a lot of accomplishments. I you know I talk about lust and sort of desire as one to to kind of be wary of. And then I think the the, the final is like I think a lot of people don't have stillness because of you know just traumas or experiences that they've had in their life that they they they've kind of left untreated right and so tiger woods john f kennedy both examples of people who sort of experienced profound profoundly screwed up childhoods from their overbearing fathers and and then instead of processing that it sort of ultimately led them both right off a cliff. let's talk about this idea of managing or bridling desires. Because both the the Eastern
0: philosophies and the Stoics, they talk about desire, like desire for more, desire for either more money, status, sex. That was sort of the big driver of suffering. So what did Mm -hmm. these guys say about what we can do to bridle those desires so we feel like we have
1: enough, that we're content in life? Well, I really became fascinated with Epicurus because Epicurus has this reputation of being this kind of like depraved hedonist, right? But there's almost no evidence of that whatsoever. In fact, like one of the few letters w- that we have that survived from him of like asking for something, like he had all these rich patrons. He, he could have had access to, you know, women or, or alcohol or pleasures of, of any kind, right? And in this letter, he's like, he's asking if, if this sort of rich, pa- this patron's like, can I do anything for you? And he's like, yes, you know, I'd really like a small pot of cheese. You know, I think that would be wonderful, right? Like here you have a depraved hedonist and, and he's Finding great pleasure in in cheese, right? And and so uh, Epicurus talks about. He goes like, "Look, really think about if you get the object of your desire, what are you actually going to feel like? What is it actually going to change, right? Because w- what what we tend to think about, let's say, it's some." Talking to a married person and they see someone and it's, like, Oh, I would love to sleep with that person. What they're thinking about is like that moment, right? They're thinking about the sexual encounter, right? And the, the sort of pleasure of that. But Epicurus is asking them to, to sort of flash forward to what you think about and how you feel right after, right? Or what happens if you get caught, right? And, and what happens if, if you can't stop yourself after, right? Like he's sort of going like, don't just think about the the pleasure of the acquiring you know think about what this is actually going to do and feel like sort of more more comprehensively and it it was a way of kind of checking those desires it's like we all have lusted over something right let's say it's a career accomplishment we're like I want to be X, right? I want to win a Super Bowl, I want to be a best-selling author, I want to be a millionaire, I want to have a big fancy house, right? Or I want to be the CEO of this company. And then we've gotten it, right? Or we've gotten some we, we had something we wanted to get into Harvard and we got into Harvard. And I would urge you to try to remember what that actually felt like, which is at least in my experience and I think this is borne out by the literature. It was kind of a little disappointing, right? It's like it wasn't the magical cure all that you thought it would be. It didn't transform really anything. You still felt the same desires and urges. You just were directing it to the next thing, right? And so they really want us to stop and kind of think about this because it's, it's what's going to hopefully help us. Have a little bit of power over that impulse to do it over and over and over and over again, another aspect of uh, stilling the soul
0: are relationships. how do you think that How do you think relationships can help still the soul
1: i i i I was trying to sort of punch back at this weird thing that's taken hold i think generationally but but it's pretty universal i guess with with ambitious people, which is somehow that relationships and success Or relationship and relationships and achievements are mutually exclusive or that one kind of takes away from the other. I tend not to find that's true. You know, you and I have talked about Churchill before. You know, Churchill says that his greatest accomplishment was convincing uh, Clementine Churchill to, to marry him. And, uh, she, she wrote a, a, there's a fascinating biography of her that I read a, a few months ago, but you just see that like it, in really great, great people, it was almost always a team effort of some kind right and then when i i, I, I find the opposite right like when i look at people that i thought i admired and then I, I find out that they were you know terrible mothers or fathers or that they were you know sort of horrible spouses or you know horrible children it it just changed like jean-jacques rousseau you find out that he gave all these kids up for adoption and to me it like just throws Throws the philosophy right out the window or or even Buddha, right the, the idea that in seeking enlightenment, Buddha walked out on his wife and his young child it 's like suddenly it doesn't doesn 't feel so impressive anymore. you know what I mean right so I mean look, what in your own experience well I mean not in your experience, like some of the people you 've come across,
0: you mentioned Churchill finding you know, relationships bringing stillness to his soul. Any other people you
1: highlight in the book well yeah i think, I think what you find is that. Often to be great, you're kind of out of balance, right? Like you, you have an excess in one trait or another. So in Churchill, it was ambition and energy and it was, you know, a desire to win and, and, and all of that. And, and someone like Clementine balanced that out, right? So they became a really great team. I got to imagine, you know, it's the exact situation just flipped gender wise with, with Angela Merkel and her husband. So at least in my relationship just having someone at home who understands you who gets you in a way that maybe you being inside you doesn't get is is hugely beneficial it, it calms you down it gives you perspective but then also it's like what are you doing all this for right like if you're doing it all and then you're just sitting home alone in your enormous mansion with no one to share it with or with a, you know a revolving door of people that you know, work for you or want something from you. I don't know. That seems very empty to me.
0: I just, I just pictured uh, there will be blood when you mentioned the the empty mansion, (laughs) right? That's, that's him. Totally.
1: Yes. 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 Daniel Plainview. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's like, again, what are you, what are you doing this for? Right. Who are you sharing it with ultimately? So let's move on to the body. So what role does the body play in a still life? Well, you know, I, I was sort of making a playoff sort of mind, body, soul, but but in the body, I, I'm referring to sort of anything, anything sort of physical, right? The environment, actions, you know, movement, all of that sort of thing. It's it's how do you, how do you get to stillness through what you're doing? Right. And so, um, one of the ones I, I, again, I'm, I'm sort of a Churchill nerd, but I was just fascinated that the Churchill wrote a book about painting, right. Churchill painted 500 paintings in his lifetime. And, and he said, you know, in the, in the painting book, he talks about how the most important thing that a, that a powerful public person can have is, is a handful of hobbies. Right. And so where I, and I, I think the power of hobby is that it, it gives you something else to pour your energy into. It forces you to take time off from what you're doing and, and in so doing, create some balance, but it also creates room for reflection. So I, I'm, I'm talking to you today from my, my farm outside Austin and it's like, people go, Oh, isn't having that farm a lot of work? And it's like, it is, but it gives me something to worry about. That's not how's my book selling right now? Right. Or, you know, where's that contract they said they were going to give me, right? It gives me an opportunity to go outside and go fishing. It gives me, you know, my son and I, we went for a bike ride this morning. Like, it it, it encourages better behaviors and, and sources of stillness for me, even though... In, in some ways, and, and and then I I'm able to apply that to the work in a constructive way, and so even though it takes me away from the work, it, it actually makes me better at it, and I'm, generally I think it makes me a happier person. Yeah,
0: the, I liked how you started off talking about Churchill to start off your chapter or your section about body because this a lot of people don't know about this Churchill. Yeah, he painted. Uh, he also he like laid bricks. He enjoyed laying yeah. bricks. This is like you know during the war he'd go out to his country estate to. Build a wall. He enjoyed it. He had his daily routine. You talk about his daily routine. Very physically active. He was standing, walking, taking baths, feeding ducks. But it allowed him at the same time to just be a prolific writer. Yes. And then also save democracy, save the Western world uh, during World War II.
1: Yeah, I say in the book like that. His paintings are not in museums because they're good paintings. They're in museums because what the person who painted them was able to do through and because of his painting habit. Like after one of the Allied war conferences, you know, Churchill takes a five hour car trip to go paint a sunset in Marrakesh. And, and you can imagine him just desperately needing a few minutes or a few hours to not think about the horrible suffering and struggle and stress. And then, and then we imagine he returned, I think he returns and, you know, begins planning the, the D-Day invasion. So, it's, 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 it's not escapism, it's, it's the opposite.
0: And I think uh, this is sort of counterintuitive. People think in order to recharge and find stillness, you have to, like, not do anything. Um, yeah. For Churchill, that wasn't true. He even said that a change is, he said a change is as good as a rest. I and love that. I found that in my own life. I found that like, there's always you have those moments where are like, I just don't want to do anything. And then you do nothing and like you feel exhausted from doing nothing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, I get more energy out of going for a run than I do watching two hours of Netflix. Right. Like I, and, and I think it's because you, you feel like you've accomplished something versus like you know, you just wasted two hours of your life, you're not getting back.
0: Right. So you talk about different things you can do to find stillness of body. One is taking walks regularly. So who are some famous walkers you've encountered in
1: your research? Again, all, all the the walkers are are almost as as universal as the journalers. But you know Hemingway was a big walker. Kierkegaard is the main character that I talk about. Every day he would go for a walk. He would write until he kind of hit a point of diminishing returns. And then you just walk. And it's, it's weird. You know, we, I think we think people used to walk a lot more, but it's like when Kierkegaard was walking around, sidewalks were a new invention. (laughs) Like we didn't used to do that that much, right? And in some senses, we used to walk more, but in other senses, we used to walk less. And so it's just about, it's about going outside. It's putting the body in movement. You know, the, the Buddhists do talk about a walking meditation and and And, as someone who has trouble sitting still myself, I tend to find that walks are are where I get that from. I actually do kind of two kinds of walks i tend to i walk or I take my son for a bike ride in the morning just to get outside you know to start the day and it's wonderful, but also like when I do phone calls i i 'm almost all I, I almost always take them outside walking as well it 's like I have this, you know, 30 minutes of dead time that I don't want to, you know, I'd probably rather not be doing if I had my, you know, a choice about it. But I'm going to walk because it's a chance to be outside, to get some sunlight, to put the body in motion, to sort of lull yourself into a place where your best thinking can happen. And I find that I, I perform better on the phone calls because I'm walking. I've noticed in my own life, like moving my body, I get a lot of good thoughts doing that. Well, I find when I, when I take my son for a walk, he, he's only three, so he doesn't walk. He sits in a stroller, right? Like, a we're out in the country, so it's sort of an off-roady stroller. But the point is, on the mornings, like, let's say it's raining or it's too cold that I don't take him on the walk, he's somehow crazier and more amped up throughout the day than he is when we have that walk. And so it's, it's not the physical part of it, right? Cause he's, he's burning the same, he's probably burning more calories running around inside than he is, you know, me pushing him around in the stroller. But I think it's just the, it's the being outside. It's the, you know, walking is just at the right pace that you're able to think. You, you know, your, your heart rate isn't really elevated too much. I think it's just, the, it's the rhythm of it that's really so valuable. So, another
0: way we can find stillness of body through activity are hobbies. You mentioned that earlier, a lot, like Churchill said that everyone should have like every statesman should have a hobby besides Churchill, any other people you encountered that you know did great things but also made time for hobbies that people would think, well, that's just a waste of time
1: <laughs> i was I was fascinated by Churchill's predecessor, William Gladstone who Who loved to just chop down trees? that was his hobby. He had this big estate, and he would go out and anytime he saw a dead tree, he was like, "I'm chopping that thing down and he chopped something like three thousand trees down in his lifetime and so it's it's worth saying it's not like he was clear cutting forests like these were this he was helping he was but the point was by hand. One of the most powerful people in the world was, was sharpening an axe and then chopping down a tree. And he, he was sort of saying that, you know, as he would get into the, the rhythm of it, he would have some of his best thoughts. You know, his, his emotions would, would calm down. And it was just a, a deeply meditative experience for him. And, and, and when you look at, at the hobbies of successful people, it's almost always something surprising. Like you wouldn't think Mr. Rogers would have been a, a lifelong swimmer. But he swam at the Pittsburgh Athletic Club every day, right? And you, you just tend to find that successful people have hobbies, right? And the, the hobbies are not, ideally, they're not stamp collecting, right? If you're already working a desk job, right? Maybe if you're a professional athlete, you know, Chris Bosch famously taught himself how to, how to program, like he taught himself some programming languages one off season. You can imagine that's, that's a deeply interesting thing for someone whose profession has them you know, be really active all the time. So he's, he's balancing out the physical with a mental activity. I'll, most of us today don't have physical professions. And so, you know, I- I exploring some sort of physical hobby is maybe the best way to do it.
0: And I think what's interesting about these guys is that their hobbies, they did it for just the love of the hobby itself. I think there's this tendency in our culture today. It's like, if you're going to have a hobby, you got to find a way to make it a side hustle and make money from it. But these guys didn't, like that, that, they, don't, they didn't care about that
1: yeah it's a it's a side hustle and then it also I, I think the other part is is it's and I know you're into weightlifting and so I was watching your p r and 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 I'm very impressed by it but like as a runner, what I'm actually like i like to tell people i'm training to not run a marathon, I know I can run one because I've done the distance before, but the the point is I'm not trying to win at my hobby like i actually i feel like i it's not healthy for me to have more competition in my life and so i it's more like the, the marathon is like can i do it right can i do it on a regular basis not can i win at exercise and so i think it's it 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 can be important depending on your personality so this isn't a one size fits all thing but don't turn don't suck the fun out of your hobby by making it results-based. I think that's what's so great about Churchill's paintings is that he wasn't very good at it, right? Like he loved it, but he certainly wasn't uh, world-class.
0: No, I think it's interesting. I, I, with my hobby with weightlifting, it's like my main hobby I got. When I first started, it was very like oriented on the results and it was a big driver of my motivation. But I found like really like last this, this year, 2019, I just don't really care. Like I just train because I enjoy it. And if like the PR comes, great. Fantastic. If it doesn't, no big deal. I still enjoy it. But like before, if I didn't hit a PR, it would just like ruin my day. And like I don't care anymore. I just enjoy the the moving. And I think that I think that's sort of a that's what happens if you
1: as you mature in a hobby or an interest. Yeah and that's that's where I'm trying to get in my writing career but it's also what I'm what I'm trying to say in in the book generally which is like it's not that you get to a place of stillness and suddenly you don't care about your job anymore you know that you, you don't do it's it's no you want to be great at what you're doing and you want to improve But you want to, you want to be coming to it from a place of, of fullness rather than a place of craving. So it's like the weightlifting. If it's, if it's like, Hey, I have to get this PR because if I'm not improving, I suck, you know, or I'm bad or someone else is better than me. It's, it's that it's exactly as you're saying. It's like, I genuinely love doing this and I'm going to keep doing it. And from the love and from the commitment as it happens, the byproduct is often better results. Right. This goes back
0: to the Gita. Uh, That's like the main message of the Bhagavad Gita, right? It's like, you just love the work for the work itself. Like, don't worry about the rewards of it.
1: Yeah. And I talk about that in Ego is the Enemy. It's like, the effort has to be enough because you don't control the results. At least in weightlifting, you kind of do, or running, you kind of do, right? But it's like, I I had to get to a place with writing where it's like, you know, this, when this book came out, it, it debuted at number one. It was wonderful, but I didn't control that. It, it just as easily could have been like all my other books, which is that it sold well, but was somehow snubbed by the Times list. Right. And it's like, if I had decided that success was this thing I didn't control. Not only would I be upset, but I would have rendered this meaningful experience that I just went through as somehow less significant because somebody else decided that that that's what it was. And that's not a, that's not a place of fullness. That, that's what craving gets you. Did you enjoy writing this book the most compared to the other two? I, I really, I really did, but I don't think it was an accident. I mean, I really had to remind myself, this was the first time uh, on a book that I, that I, really force myself to slow down and i I also sort of actively thought throughout the process it was like okay like did you like consider the book done today right like it's like i'm I'm finishing for the day I don't know whether I'm going to get to come back to it tomorrow because like, you don't know right we could go at any moment I, I wanted to so so am I actually enjoying and feeling gratitude and feeling sort of purpose in the day to dayness of it not in the I'm working hard every day for the next two years so that when this comes out, I will be rewarded, right? To me, that's a very fragile, vulnerable strategy. You want it, to, it's a, a much more resilient strategy to be like, I am getting benefits out of this every day for two years. And then it comes out. And if you get the results, that's extra. But if you don't, you already got your money back, you know? You already got your investment back.
0: Well, Ryan, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: So you can go to ryanholiday.net everywhere. I'm at Ryan Holiday on pretty much every social. And then uh, we should probably tell people about uh, Daily Dad as well, if you want a sort oh, yeah, of that's father-inspired right. Meditation on on philosophy and self improvement.
0: Yeah, that's the new newsletter you've got coming out. Is that is that delivering now? Yeah, yeah. Just go to dailydad.com. Dailydad.com. Well, Ryan Holiday, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. My guest here is Ryan Holiday. He's the author of the book Stillness is the Key. It's available on Amazon.com. Check out his website, ryanholiday.net, where you can find out more information about his work. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is/slash stillness. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles rewritten over the years about physical fitness, personal finances, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad free episodes of the AOM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to Stitcherpremium.com, use code manliness, sign up, get a free month trial. When you're done signing up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AON Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you not only listen to the AON podcast, but put what you've heard into action.